Manor Park, the Wicker, Knowlton, Freshman, Hackenthal, Shalesmoor, Wombwell, Catcliffe, Brincliffe, Attercliffe, Ecclesall. Good evening and welcome to the Recollective Podcast. My name is Charlie Beale and in the studio tonight I'm joined by my regular chum Mr. Tom Goodfellow and for the first time ever on the Recollective Podcast, the one, the only Mr. Mark Sturdy. Say hello to the listeners, Mark. Hello to the listeners, Mark. <laughs> There's a taste for that nice sardonic northern humour for which you will all have an hour to an hour and a half's worth of luxuriating. Um, Tom, you chose this intro music. What is it? What is there to denote? So this is Sheffield Sex City by Pulp. Um, to give a little clue to our listeners as to the theme of tonight's podcast, which is the first in what we hope will be a series of city-based podcasts. And we're beginning with the great, mighty city of Sheffield, in which I currently reside, which our guest, uh, Mark, has a deep knowledge of, and um, which has a fantastic music heritage. And we're going to talk about it, play some songs, reflect on what Sheffield has offered to the world of popular music. Yes, so beyond the World Snooker Championships and um, Steel, uh, the Full Monty uh, and Sheffield's F... uh, Wednesday and United. Uh, Correct. There's a rich, rich musical heritage that I've only just started scratching the surface of. Um, you forgot Sean and, Bean. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. No. Well, well, we can go through some other ones. J. Mulcairns, um <laughs> various others. Um, yes. I, I, I'm probably going to play second or third or fourth fiddle in this, as you two more knowledgeable gentlemen um, start talking about the music of of Sheffield. But before we do that, let's introduce you all to Mark. Mark, I think the last time I saw you was around 2004-2005. Why do we know you? (laughs) Um, Because I went to school with, uh, with our good friend Jim. And in, I think, probably... 2001 or so, uni holidays, I bumped into him in our hometown of Harrogate and he was telling me about his band, The Cling. And I was like, okay. I looked you up when I, uh, when I got, uh, got back to my digs. Um, I think the songs you had on your website at the time were, were Just In Time and Beggar's Boyfriend. Fuck, this, this is really good. Um, and I came down to see you at the, the Water Rats and I was so effusively excited about you you seem to feel um, a deep-seated obligation to return the favour by being ridiculously kind about my crap student band, Arthur's Departure. No, 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 that was not that was not a sense of obligation by any means. I saw Arthur's Departure at the Hope and Anchor, um, and yes, that, which is which is made famous, obviously, by the police having kind of I don't know if they debuted there, but they certainly played there in the, their early days. Um, but I thought you were a terrific front man. Oh, bless you! <laughs> I was listening to what? the mini disc of that gig the other day. Actually, I still got it. So, uh, yeah. 
we were we we, we weren't quite as presumably a way of playing mini discs which is something that i wish i had i do have my disc my mini discman (laughs) if uh if you want to lend it to us mark i don't think i was at this gig i think you came to see us at the bull and gate tom perhaps i have a very bad memory i think yeah but bull and gate rings a bell that was the first time we played in london i I thought okay i do remember liking the band anyway i'm sure this is fascinating for the boys and girls at home but yeah we we've we've um encircled each other ever since i was i was big into the cling and sing scarlet for a few years got you gigs in leeds and such like yes that very memorable gig in leeds but you're not just on this on this podcast on the basis of the fact that you were once in a band called Arthur's Departure. You actually have a rich musical heritage, um, and you are the author of the the book. Um, uh, what's it, what's the official title? Truth of the book and on, Beauty. On Pulse? Truth and Beauty. Is that is that still available to readers via via um, online megalith stores? It is on Amazon. I just saw it. You can purchase it on. Yeah, I think you can. You can get it on Kindle from Amazon. I think the print copy's gone, so you've got to come to my Not garage true. if you want no. the print copy. Six used on Amazon, £18.69 £18. a piece, uh, and seventeen nineteen for the Kindle edition. And it arrives by next week. So, um, yeah. Have you, have, you had, how's the, have you sold a lot of copies? Do you, do you still have, get updates? Yeah, I still, yeah. It, it never did big numbers. I think they... They did a print run of 5,000, and that was the print run. So, yeah, it's sold all well, that's more, of those, I more think. Well, that's more books than I will ever sell. And I'm an academic who's, you know, occasionally supposed to write books, so I think that's great. And anyway, it's very fitting with Pulp, because, of course, they didn't sell anything like their Britpop peers, really, did they? The big ones. Anyway. Uh, no, well, they had their time in the sun, but it was pretty brief, wasn't it? They had a yeah. long, long gestational period and a sort of a long tailing off after the after the Britpop peak yes well we'll come to that so you live in leeds mark um so you're not you're not a, a denizen of sheffield but you presumably know quite a bit about the music scene having having um authored the book on pulp you'll you'll know the the landscape from which they were spawned absolutely yeah i mean jarvis was a big without without wanting to say say this in a cool way it was a bit of a sheffield seedster for years you know he was the pulp was steeped in that sort of local heritage i think they prided themselves on being a very sheffield sort of sheffield band so yeah i certainly i made a point of trying to find out a lot of the context they didn't grow up in a vacuum you know i mean there was they had so many ex-members from knocking about in sheffield for 10 years, 15 years before they made it. Loads of them were in other bands. They were massively interest, influenced by certain other bands around Sheffield. Um, Archery, who we're going to come to later, I believe, be the case in point. Um, so, yeah, I got I got quite into finding out about the context, some of which I gather we are going to explore tonight. We are. I mean, I suppose we should leave talking about Pulp mm, to when we listen to Pulp. But I guess that... So th- that probably brought you to Sheffield. So before, just to ask, how did you, were they just a band that you liked? Was it just that you're Yeah, I mean, I was, a, yeah. I was a fairly bog standard Pulp fan. I got into them in my, in my mid-teens, um, got 
very nerdy about them, sort of going back and discovering the the weird back catalogue that they have, which was so, so different from the stuff that they are known for, this sort of bleak, badly recorded, um, sort of gloomy, gothy Sheffield indie. Um, and I guess the genesis of the book was books were coming out about them that were of the uh, the sort of glossy cuttings jobs uh, that you used to get about your favourite pop stars that were kind of 80 pages long and knocked off in a weekend that I'd I'd become sufficient of a pulp nerd already at the age of 17 or whatever that I could read them and go well this is all wrong (laughs) (laughs) I'd I just started doing it, I guess, while I was still a sixth former. Um, started sitting in the local library with the Sheffield phone book on microfiche, um, trying to uh, get people's phone numbers, find ex-members and things like that, and it, it just sort of uh, snowballed from there. Amazing. I should tell you, by the way, because I'm sure you don't look at this kind of thing, that your 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 book has a full five stars from user ratings on Amazon. And Owen Hathley's only has four and a half. He's quite a well-known journalist and writer. And yours is based on a larger number of reviews. So there you go. Owen Hathley's book was bloody good, to be fair. Well, then yours is amazing. <laughs> I like it a lot. I, I read it and I thought, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to read them both now. But um, anyway, before we start to talk too much about Pulp, we obviously need to go back. And even though Pulp were seemingly there from the very beginning, before even the beginning of, of the bands we might want to talk about, um, we do want to talk about some others first, I think. Yeah, so I'm the least qualified to talk on this episode because I neither live in Sheffield nor have I written a book about one of its most famous bands. That said, I do know that the Human League are from Sheffield. And um, when I thought about which song of theirs to play, I thought I always quite like going back to the beginning. And so I wanted to look at something from their 1979 debut album, Reproduction. Um, And there are a few to choose from. And this was in the days where... uh, Philip Oakey was still with Martin Ware and um, is it Ian Craig Marsh, who then went on to make uh, Heaven 17. And it's a song called Empire State Human that you both know. I'll play it now. Concentration, my size increased. 
to get through this evening so I'm going to uh, wind that down a little early. Does anyone know what that keyboard sound is that joins in in the verse? It's very, it was used quite heavily by Kraftwerk wasn't it? No I don't. No. Which, which, which keyboard is that? It's um, the ding 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 bits yeah. in the verse. I don't know what you would call it, but it's a kind of classic sound of that period, isn't it? As you say. Um, yeah, I mean, interesting to hear that song. I hadn't listened to it for ages. There's some interesting backing vocals going on as well, which I just was just trying, trying to hear what they were saying. <laughs> fetch more water, fetch more sand. So it's reportedly about Oki's kind of like the growing personal ambition he has to become a big pop megastar. But I think it sounds almost like rapacious capitalism and the desire to be bigger and um um and better and and it kind of it, it imbues that sense of like well well they're on the cusp of the of 1980 and the cold war is raging and um it feels like this it's it's full of those kind of war games type um iconography and i don't know maybe it's just me having no instances about that period it fits, yeah, with what they were about. I mean, the that first album, it's quite dystopian in a lot of places, isn't it? It's there are lots of songs on there about kind of almost sort of JG Ballard type uh, cityscapes and things. So it does it does kind of fit with that. Yeah, and it's of course it's nineteen. 19- 1979, when Thatcher came to power, which obviously influenced quite a lot of the music over the next decade. I guess that was released just after Thatcher came to power, but it might have been um, recorded before that. So it's interesting to think it's just on the cusp of, you know, things that would change Sheffield a lot in terms of capitalism and its effects. But the Human League obviously then became a much more famous band in the early 80s with with the release of Don't You Want Me, another... Um, tracks. One of the ones that might have been on my shortlist was the Lebanon, which for <laughs> did you not have a have a, a midnight demo with Jim called the Charred Fields of the Lebanon? I did, although that was a bit more of a, a Nick Drake uh, style. But yeah, yeah, the Lebanon was obviously in the news a lot then, and you know something that people I don't know. <laughs> but um, it's important, I guess, to play that because the other, you know, the Human League and Heaven Seventeen are quite. Um, you know, famous luminaries from Sheffield. Two of the people who who performed on that song then went on and made um, 
the band Heaven 17. So um, it felt like a good one to kick the episode off, but I don't know a great deal about um, the Human League in general. Can you tell us more, Mark? Because <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> oh, was yeah, that, that a prompt? That was, that was me uh, prompting. <laughs> well, you know, I don't like to be... Re- but they, they had sort of avant-garde roots. They were... Um, their first incarnation, their singer was Addie Newton, who was in Clock DVA later on, who I think we're going to come to later. And there's, um, there's a really cool compilation that came out um, quite a few years ago now that uh, I think Richard X put it together. It's called The Golden Hour of the Future, and it's all their early demos, uh, which are uh, lots of kind of quite heavy, sort of pure synth stuff. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they came from a very sort of art rock kind of background. Well, I think, didn't Johnny Rotten call them trendy hippies? <laughs> Did he? Uh... You, you can imagine him doing that. Were they part of Pulp's circle? Because they're not obviously as closely associated with Pulp as some of the other bands. I don't think they're quite crossed over, no. Um, I think they were, they were a bit early. And then one last question about Human League. Um, th- that song was recorded at somewhere called Monumental Studios. Is that some something that are well-known studios? Um, never heard of it. Um, I know they had their own little studio. Was it on Devonshire Green down in Sheffield? There could be a studio there. I certainly know Devonshire Green, but I've not heard about there being a studio there now. It's the kind of place there might be. It was some falling apart, chaotic place. Didn't Cabaret Voltaire have a place down there as well? Again, don't know. (laughs) You can can ask these questions, Mark. Um... (laughs) We would love to be able to answer. No, I mean, it's a... There's a lot of things I need to do. The Jarvis Cocker actually has a guided walk of Sheffield venues that tells you the Sheffield music history through a series of places, uh, which I, I regrettably I haven't done. I think partly because I was waiting for people like you lot to come up here and then we could all do it together. Still possible. Um, but yeah, I Shall should say, like, let's move on. Because uh, I, I didn't really know much about any of these bands other than the Human League and sort of Heaven 17's big hits. Um, and obviously Pulp. And then I moved here. And then just round the corner from my house, just on literally on the edge of the street, there was a shop uh, above, I mean, this is very <laughs> Sheffield thing, above a kind of um, reclaimed goods upcycling of like old bits of wood kind of shop. There's, there's just like some stairs at the back and then you go up the back and then there's a sort of ramshackle cafe and a shop selling loads of random shit. And then in the middle of the random shop selling shit above the upcycling shop, somebody set up a little record shop that sold only music by bands from Sheffield. Um, and it was amazing. It was like, so it's like a corner of this loft and it was CDs and vinyl and um, probably other formats. And, and only what anything was it, called, it, was, it was quite a large, oh, now you're testing me because it's long gone, but it was called. It's not Bouquet of Steel, is it? Yes, it was called Bouquet of Steel. Oh yeah, yeah, that was Jamie, Jamie Hedgecharge. Yes, that sounds familiar. Who also lives around the corner from here, I think. Did you go there? Uh, no, no, uh, but I know he had um, he had a really good Facebook page where he, he was sort of posting loads of Sheffield music history stuff for a while. But I, I think, yeah, there was there, met, there were some difficulties there, weren't there? Things, there things were went a bit difficulties, through. and I didn't meet him, but I think I met his partner who was working. Anyway, but um, it wasn't open that long, and I went there and I was like, this is great, I'm going to get into all this music. I got about as far as buying a vinyl copy of that first Human League album, partly because it's just got such an amazing cover. Um, it's unlistenable because 
it's so scratched. Uh, but um, and then I bought, I think, a Comsat Angels single. Maybe I bought Independence Day, which is the song I'm going to play now. So I'd never heard of the Comsat Angels or any of those bands, but I kind of explored this shop, hoped to explore it more, but then it shut down. But let's hear this song because this is a a very a very different side of the the music that was going on at exactly the same time with with echoes of other kinds of bands uh, that we've heard more recently and in different parts of the country. So let's hear it and then reflect. Independence Day bits, the post-chorus or the chorus? <laughs> Good question. I think it's probably a post-chorus, really. Or it's the end of the chorus? Feels like a post-chorus. Yeah. It's not what the end of the chorus, has it? Yeah, no. exactly. I'm saying otherwise the bridge would be the best bit. Um... Yeah, no, it's a post-chorus. I mean, I find this song, like, it's a real grower, you know? Like, um, it's the sort of thing which I've enjoyed almost each time I've listened to it a bit more. And I think it does have loads of echoes. Well, it's not correct to say echoes, is it? But you know what I mean? Uh, of, our, of our band, our second band, Seeing Scarlet in particular, in quite a lot of the stylings of it. Uh, the drumming, uh, the harmonics, we may hear more of them later. And also the way it kind of comes in after that second chorus with a new rhythm to the verse and like a kind of heavy guitar and like a, the, the bass starts doing something totally different. 
Um, we did quite a lot of that stuff, as did a lot of bands like Interpol and those kinds of bands that were drawing on Joy Division. You know, it's, it's quite a simple song, but yeah, a very evocative sounding song. Yes, I think so, and I think it's the atmospherics of it that um, the, the, that's that's another part of what you get in the Sheffield scene. Some of those bands um, where they're not necessarily big melodies. I mean, actually, even the the, the tune and the whole arrangement kind of grows on you. I think with that song, it's not obvious straight away, but it is also the atmospherics. It's quite anti-rock in a way, which is very Sheffield. You know, there's no, uh, yeah, there's no histrionics. There's no uh, big guitar solos. There's, you know, the the drums are quite minimal and insistent. And yeah, it's it's. Well, I think it's great, but it, it, it's very. It does sound very Sheffield. You know, you can imagine the police doing that song, but it would be such a different treatment of it. Hmm. That's interesting. And also another thing that's very interesting, which I hadn't realized, I started to listen to a bit more of the Comsat Angels stuff just recently, actually, in advance of this podcast. And um, they obviously had, they've got kind of, you know, a cult following. People like Mark Commode, who are like big fans and claim they're better than Joy Division. And obviously there were those kind of comparisons with bands like Joy Division in Manchester, which we'll do in another episode. Um, But they also apparently allegedly influenced you too and if you listen to some of the other records you can really hear in the guitar playing it's very edge like and best of all is that apparently you two once supported them in a gig in 1980 in loughborough or something apparently and then i think they toured with you two later presumably as support so it's like you two took some aspects of that sound and then slapped on massive pop tunes which is obviously not what the concert angels were about and became huge. Um, but yeah, so that song was on, I don't really know what it, it's about. Um, but that was on this collection called Bouquet of Steel. Oh, sorry, the, the, the Comsat Angels were on a collection called Bouquet of Steel, along with Artery and others. And that's what we're going back to my point about the, the Cold War, um, we've got Empire State Human, we've mm. got uh, Independence Day, which is feels sort of American as a reference. And we've got yeah. bands like um, one that we'll play later, um, there must be Russians. Yeah, um, true. It, it does feel like, and there was one other that that made me think. Gosh, everyone's talking about America and, and the Soviets. Anyway, one to watch out for. See if you get any other references. Uh, yes, and I just want to say because I, I was torn a bit about whether to play that song or a different song because I knew that that band should should get an airing. Um, there's an amazing song on their third album, which I've now forgotten the name of. Anyway, it's great. Uh, and again, I think if you listen to that, our own bands have been quite influenced as well as others. So I, I think that was a, a really actually a very influential band, although often forgotten. So, Mr. Sturdy, the stage is yours. Gosh, OK, then. Right. So we couldn't avoid doing Pulp in this, really. Um I thought I would go a little deeper. Uh, I assume that everyone at home has heard and formed opinions about, do you remember the first time, Babies and Common People, um, and even stuff like this is hardcore. Uh, So I wanted to pick something out from their pre-fame years, um, but also 
something that was immediately enjoyable. A lot of their old stuff, it's not that it's crap, it's that you sometimes have to listen, well, some of it is, but you sometimes have to listen to it with what I would say was a sympathetic ear mm. um, to, get, to get something out of it. This is a track called Rattlesnakes, or Rattlesnake, I beg your pardon, which they recorded in 1987, um, so good five, six, seven years before they made it. Um, they were already two albums in by this point. It was going to be on a single, which never got released, uh, recorded at Fon Studios on the Wicker in Sheffield. Um, yeah, shall we, shall we stick it on and see what we make of it? I just went back on my promise One I kept through countless ages All I did was hold her hand The world split into two tonight Oh, and it's so big I can't believe it Hovers over every action In the distance getting nearer It will be here by tonight It is. <laughs> Rasputin, I thought. Andre, yeah. Yeah, we've got yeah. the Soviet reference back again. Oh, it literally is Rasputin. Do you remember I tried to get Russell Senior to produce you? I remember you talking about him a lot. Yeah, I sent him your demo, the Brian Mills stuff. Um, and he liked it. He thought it was great. Did he? I think he yeah. Um, he said he no. I, uh, I think I had the conversation with Jim, maybe. Um, and it was like, I think he said no because he didn't know what to do with it that wouldn't like push it into sort of it just being a bit silly. Um, what was the what was the demo? What song? Or it was songs? it was these the six track ugly girl uh, oh, what wow. might stand that one. Um, it couldn't think of anything to do with it. What his his thing was with producing is to push things further in the direction that they're already going in, and it was like a couple of those songs had a sort of swing jazzy swing part. We're not listening to the song now, um, but um, and it was like he sort of thought, well, all I can think of is sort of making it a bit Charleston, and that'd be doing them a disservice. <laughs> Let's uh, bring the song back up. Sorry. <laughs>
Wow. Wow, indeed. Amazing. So, hold on. That's the, the Cossack <laughs> period of Pulp's early career. Why, why didn't they make it for years then? <laughs> You've not heard the other stuff. Um, no, I'm not going to say anything about it. I want to hear your thoughts. What? So, you go first, Tom. Well, I was just going to say that um, there are some classic hallmarks of Pulp already there in terms of the instrument, uh, the instrumentation and the music. I mean, not so much the Rasputin and the strings, but... Um, Hang on, is Boney M's Rasputin before this? Oh, yeah. Is it, yeah, is it a rip-off? Good. Okay, fine. So it's not just some generic um, Cossack tune that... I, I don't know if it's an intentional lift. I know uh, Russell liked a bit of the old Slavic stuff. So. Yeah, maybe it's a probably it's a classic Slavic kind of scale or melody that Boney M ripped off as well, right? But um, the thing that strikes me about it is that Jarvis hadn't really found his voice. He's singing in a range. It's like he's trying to sing like a Richard Hawley range or one of those other bands or even, you know, like kind of Joy Division or some, something down there that's... He hasn't got... He hasn't figured out what his distinctive voice is yet is what strikes me as. And he'd gone through his stage of trying to be uh, Leonard Cohen before that as well, which uh, wasn't Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's, I think you can hear elements of later pulp um, in the... There's obviously a lot of melodrama there. Um, the episodic structure where it starts quite restrained and he works himself up into a tiz yes and the music follows suit um and lyrically yeah i mean it's lyrically i think it's what did you think of the lyrics did you hear much of the lyrics we were talking over most of it weren't we yeah i need to go and give it a second listen lyrically but i just thought musically the structure it just seemed like a band that was still playing I remember when we first started as a band, we played around, and one of the one of the freedoms that, uh, in your early time, you can you can do joke songs, um, and I, I'm not sure was that was that verging into that territory where they just thought like fuck it, let's try this idea. I strongly suspect they were absolutely serious. Um, okay. I mean, they did okay. an LP called Separations just after this, which it didn't go quite as far down that route, but it had. Yeah, the sort of Slavic, Slavic influences and the uh, um, those sort of Gogol Bordello type violins and that kind of thing, uh, which they they had little bits of it later on. I mean, the um, the best known song that's got a bit of that is probably "I Spy," which has got that sort of slight Romany kind of feel to it. Uh, yeah. Well, then my other contention is then the other thing that happens when you form a band at the beginning is that people come from different backgrounds. And at the beginning, they're kind of just bringing what they've got to the table. And before the band itself has an identity, everyone's just Mm. kind of like bringing their influences. So if if there is a strong influence of that kind of music from a Russell Senior or or others Mm. in the band, maybe that's why they did, did that before they kind of almost got their unique band sound. Yeah, and certainly they had... Again, I think this is a bit of a Sheffield thing as well. Everyone needed to be different from everyone else. Nobody um, in that sort of scene particularly wanted to play it straight. So it was... Do you mean every band member had to be different from everyone else? Uh, that, well, <laughs> yeah, that, that as well in, in Pulp's case, probably. But yeah, the, 
every band had to be different from every other band. Yeah. It was, you know, um, show me something else that sounds like Rattlesnake. You know? I think that, that yeah, that, that's a really interesting point as well, because when you think about what happened later on in the Sheffield scene, I mean, we're not playing Arctic Monkeys and like Milburn, but, you know, if you listen to Milburn, <laughs> even though I know they were around before, you know, it's like, and that's, I, that's also the music industry, right? Kind of sort of being like, here's a scene. You know, we all know what happened after Oasis and so on. But this is almost like before the industry before knew how to do that. And <laughs> the bands were all differentiating themselves from each other which is mm. quite cool. But I want to ask something about the time, 87, and the fact that Pulp had obviously been arsing around. And as you know better than anyone, uh, they've had a huge number of members, right, coming and going and yeah. uh, this kind of mess. And they, they kept on going. But what was going on? Like, this is way after that kind of wave of all the stuff from 1979 to like 1982 with Cabaret Voltaire, Concert Angels, Human League, the scene of Sheffield. Did they just hang around and just keep doing it after everyone else had broken up yeah, or become I mean, famous they went, through, they went through different incarnations at that cabaret voltaire human league sort of time they were a schoolboy band they were a sixth form band and they kind of were getting ahead of themselves they got to do a peel session very early on in like 81 so it, it looked like they were going places and that's kind of why they carried on why jarvis didn't go to university sort of stayed in sheffield formed a new version of the band um i think by the time we get to this sort of period he's um realizing he may have made a grave error <laughs> taken a wrong turn in his life um so he, he goes he goes to london shortly after that and yeah sort of does his um, to college yeah he goes to goes to st martin's um of course at the age of 25 26 so yeah they they carried on um they did put records out um but they were getting less steadily less popular, not more popular. They had their <laughs> devotees in Sheffield, uh, but they, they they kind of they weren't reaching beyond that. I mean, you can, you know, yeah. it, it's all on the internet. There are sort of you know the occasional rave review in the Melody Maker in 1986 or whatever, but you know, an, an awful lot of indifference because they were so out of step with the times you know even sort of on the alternative scene yeah are, the smiths they, yeah they, you know they were very much not the smiths um for better or for worse you you, you know you could get I've, I've got a couple of you know compilation lps for the time of like the the indie scene of 1986 or whatever and it's got a pull track on it and it's got you know three three bands that sound like the cure four bands that sound like the mission and um pulp singing this strange dirge that's half in french about a man who keeps his dead girlfriend in his house wow <laughs> we, bet, we, 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 we need to move on but we should we should talk more about pulp later because obviously it's you know <laughs> there's a lot to say so jumping back I, I didn't do this chronologically because it would have just been skewed in some ways if we'd done that of going back now to 1981 so when we're kind of the electro music scene is really really taking off here thatcher's in power uh sheffield you know was hit harder than most cities by that and um of course a few things people know about sheffield is the steel industry um uh and the music scene among others and the nature the cliffs and the climbing and um this 
you know, Jarvis has talked about how in those early days, the music was influenced by the steel, steel industry. It was just going on everywhere. And I think it's hard living in Sheffield now to comprehend what that was like. But the sounds of the steel industry came through in the music. And I think you can really hear this on this track. So that electro-industrial sound comes to the fore. So let's hear this. This is the debut single from Heaven 17 after whatever split with um, Human League. This song was actually banned by the BBC, partly because of that line. Which line? Like, well, he said something about Reagan, president-elect, uh, fascist, something, something. I don't even. Basically, it was just like slagging fascist off. Fascist god in motion. Yes. There you are. And so I guess he was president-elect, right? It was 1981. Maybe he hadn't come in. Um, yeah. So it was controversial because he was basically libeling him as a fascist. But um, I think this song captures very well, probably, Sheffield in 1981, both in terms of the mood and the industrial sounds. I heard Radio One also banned it as the bass solo. <laughs> it is quite something, that bass solo. <laughs> but it's interesting because it's, it's got things that you kind of associate with slightly naff later 80s stuff, you know, like the, the sax comes in, doesn't it, in the slightly cheesy way the bass but it's quite it still it feels a bit avant-garde doesn't it it's still it's got this stiff insisted beat to it like like you were saying before the, the the industrial thing so it kind of uses those elements but in a in a slightly weird way one of the bands that we could have gone to was cabaret voltaire but i think i don't i find them almost unlistenable i struggle with cabaret voltaire that's why i chose this instead but they really epitomised that industrial sound. Yeah, they did. And I think these guys just kind of put more sort of tunes over it. And there's something quite, quite, you know, like what Bowie was doing at the time in terms of that kind of chord change. Um, actually, it also reminds me a bit of Little Wonder. 
like the way the chord kind of goes. Anyway, it's, it's kind of, um, I think it, it was an early attempt to, yeah, to do something kind of industrial and jerky and uncomfortable in those political times. Um, I quite like it because it's got these naive lyrics about brothers and sisters and, you know, it's almost like a hippie, you know, that funky, funky groove, or, you know, whatever it is. But, but also dark political lyrics as well. I think it was originally called something like We Don't Need This Groove Thang or something, and then they put the fascist in. <laughs> Just, so it got more political very quickly. Anyway, so that's that's that side. So I think there was, you know, there was a couple of things going on. There was obviously like this electro stuff going crazy, but then there was also the dark kind of atmospheric rock that was a bit more like what was happening in Manchester, but Manchester kind of ran with that and that became their their scene and their influence in a way. But then there were other things going on. So Artery is an interesting one because, Mark, you know way more about them, of course, than I do. And this was a band that Pulp hung out with, right? Uh, yeah, they shared a few members. I mean, they were they were a bit more established than Pulp. They were already Ooh, a, a, a big Sheffield... Um, in you know, They were a big Sheffield band in the late 70s, early 80s when Pulp were kids. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a story of like... Pulp playing their first Sheffield gig at the Lead Mill, Jarvis age 16, 17. Coming back later on, because it was an all-dayer because Archery were on. Uh, Someone already telling telling him in 1980 that they weren't as good as they used to be, you know. Uh, but he, he came back and they, they blew him away and it was kind of this epiphany kind of moment of uh, knowing that that was, you know, what what he wanted to be. So, you know, they would have they Big, big oh, really? on Pulp in that way. Okay. So I was going to play it. There are a few songs I wanted to play. By the way, uh, another song that it does that great kind of like, I don't know, is it onomatopoeic? Whatever, like sounds like the industrial sound of what it's talking about is a song by Archery called Cars in Motion. That's got this kind of growling guitar riff that really sounds like a car revving. And again, it's all about, well, I don't know what it's all about, but it does refer to like industry and automobiles and but i wanted to play it's about cars this in song. motion tom it's well yeah cars in um, motion cars moving revving um and then of course <laughs> it, it, into the garden which was was that their first single and that's a great song but i thought i'd play this song for a particular reason which we can maybe talk about afterwards and this is from a john peel session in 1982 i think rather than the album version
So, Mark, I don't know if you can tell us anything about this song. I don't know anything about the song, really. Why did you choose it? Is this the best artsy song? Not necessarily, no. I quite like it, but it's not what I... <laughs> uh, I don't know that many artsy songs, but... Um... Go on. I know an anecdote about the recording. Go on. Which was the um, at the end when it sort of degenerates into laughter. They'd done a few half-hearted takes of all the band going ha 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 over the end of it. Um, their guitarist Mick Fiddler leaves the studio for a moment. Um, notorious oddball returns stark naked runs round the uh, live room in a state of mania spreading his arse cheeks on the control room glass etc so the, the the sort of collapsing into laughter at the end is, is genuine because they're all uh, yeah just falling about at this idiot who they're in a band with um, yeah show, showing them his hole so is that Mick, Mick Fiddler that's that's a name yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It, should, it shouldn't take any way, anything away from what a talented musician he was. I mean, one of the things I love about this track is the most of the track is quite regimented. Yeah, I mean the rhythm section, the keyboards, it's that. It's very precise, and you've got this grainy guitar and chaotic sax, both completely working against that, haven't you? Which, I, yeah, and, and that that kind of. Makes yeah, uh, and if we'd st if we'd stay till the end, it kind of also gets kind of discordant, and yeah, it creates this kind of queasy feeling, this feeling of like being sick, like being being on a fairground ride, you know. But that's you know, so yeah, this sort of night nightmare nightmare clowns. Yeah, and the other thing it reminded me of was is another band from the pulp the era of pulp success. You know what I'm referring to here? No, it reminds me of Blur. Because, oh, okay. I mean, of course, they did a fair few sort of fairgroundy, circusy interludes. But actually, mm. if you listen to the opening of that song, and actually if you listen to the vocal line as well, I can completely imagine Damon singing it. Obviously, he'd sing it in a very different way. But it just made me think, I don't know, were some of these bands possibly having an influence beyond Sheffield? <laughs> because to me, that 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 could be an early, early-ish blur number in, in some ways, uh, which I thought was interesting. And the other reason I played it was... Uh, I chose it was because the keyboard part slightly reminded me of what we do at the beginning of We Will All Be Aliens. Um, it's a completely different mood, but there's the same kind of like um, something rhythmical about sticking in that keyboard part. And when we were, we were experimenting with having keyboards in our songs, that was the kind of thing we were doing. We later had a keyboardist in our band. But anyway, I thought there were just a few interesting resonances with it. And uh, The Coward. The Coward? The Coward had that sort of fairgroundy sort of feel, didn't it? Yes, good point. Also true. Yeah. But I mean, Into the Garden was probably the most obvious one to play from Archery, but I felt that sounds a bit more like I expected the band to sound. And it's a bit more in that mode of Joy Division and those kinds of bands, where this was something that I hadn't heard any bands from that era doing songs like that. Um, and it sounds almost like a forerunner of, of Britpop to me in some ways. Mark, I really, really love the fact that you are probably one of maybe two or three people who didn't record the song. Who knows? Who, who, the, who coward. Knows the coward. <laughs> it's a great song. Very kind of you. Well, why don't you move on to your next choice? Okay, this is um, a song by um, the All Seeing Eye featuring Tony Christie. However, 
It is not Walk Like a Panther by the All-Seeing Eye. It's featuring Tony Christie, fans of the pop charts in 1999. It is a song of the same album, um, but it's, uh, it's called Stars on Sunday. And it's, I chose it because I like it very much, but also it's, it's very, very Sheffield uh, in, its, in the bizarre com- sort of the combination of people bouncing off each other, this sort of Sheffield electro um, act, the all-seeing eye, who've done stuff on their own beforehand. And um, Tony Christie, the sort of lounge cabaret singer who'd had big hits in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, 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 the collision of these, and Jarvis writing lyrics indeed, but yeah, the, the, the collision of these, these, these different things. Um, yeah, let's stick it on, see what we think of it. Seeing I album, I'm not familiar with it. I mean, that's a bit of a Sheffield special in itself. It's um, it's got Walk Like a Panther on, which I guess you know. I don't know. I don't know. You don't know what? No. Yeah, it was a big singer about '99. Jarvis wrote the lyrics. Tony Chris It's got a song with Phil Oakey singing. It's got a song with Jarvis singing. Uh, it's got the beat goes along, and it's got a baby bird on it as well. So it's, it's kind of a oh, wow. It really is. So it's not a band. The All Seeing Eye. The All Seeing Eye is a band. Yeah, it's um, yeah. They they were a kind of electronic collective. Um, they get a couple of them sort of you know go go back to the. Uh, the pulpy Thatcher's Britain on the doll 80s. Um, but yeah, they, they, they have this strange surge. I think they've, they've, they've done production as well. You'd have to um, look up who they produce. But yeah, they, they've I will. 
I hadn't heard any of their stuff, I don't think. That's passed me by in my Sheffield education. Pickled Eggs and Sherbet is the name yeah. of the album. So this is in 1999, as you say, so that's interesting because it's when we were at university and I think, um, I don't know, we weren't really exactly we, aware we, no, of we what was happening. We were bemoaning recently about how there was no good music at, at around that time. It was all Fred Durst and Robbie Williams and Top Loader. Uh, if only someone had pointed me in this direction. What, what's your stance on Travis speaking of that period of music? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So we have a conversation with Jim around this where he, he at one point in a drunken bar, uh, said, I love the music of Travis. His meaning was, I, I think, you know, sonically and musically, they're good. I just, you know, they're a bit, that their, their lyrics are a bit crap and... Um, and there's still no excuse. We just constantly <laughs> teased him for saying, I love the music of Travis. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they were okay in isolation, I thought, but it was just such... You're right, it was such a dull crap period for like mainstream indie music. They, you know, the, they, they weren't as quite as disgraceful as the stereophonics. I agree with you. The Sing, though, which I think was produced by Nigel Godrich, I think sonically is quite good. That's that's quite. Um, but yes, as a band, they didn't touch me. The stereophonics can go jump. <laughs> we refer you to our episode on. I think we did 1997 to 8, didn't we? We didn't get as far as 99. The next track I'm going to choose is from They Must Be Russians. And They Must Be Russians, I think, well, they've got all the hallmarks of a punk band, but they were one of those bands like the Ramones where they had members who were called Russ Russian and Paul Russian. This. Um, it's quite a nice little palate cleanser of a punk song. We don't have to listen to it for too long, but I thought it might be a, a nice listen along. Oh, television, by the way. Think television. Mm. Yeah. This sounds like it could have been a, an outtake demo from Marky Moon. Um, yeah, it could. Do you, does anyone else know anything particularly about They Must Be Russians? They stayed around for quite a few years, I think, didn't they? They, they sort of lasted into the 80s. Yeah, I think constant 77, 
to 85. Yeah, they're Tony Russian, Lisa Russian, Chris Russian, Martin Russian. There were a lot of them. Did they have much success? No. But they were friends with Cabaret Voltaire, who helped produce their kind of debut uh, Nelly the Elephant EP. And there was, there's some quite, if you go roosting around in the blogs, there are people who kind of cite really nice um, gig moments. and they, they were clearly there on the scene, but I don't think they broke through, did they? There wasn't that infrastructure for bands in Sheffield, I don't think. They didn't have a, a factory records. No. So Warp Records came later, right? And that was obviously very different. Oh, much later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was early 90s. Yeah, they, they, they had little indie labels, but they didn't have the... Uh, there was nothing with the glamour of, you know, factory or kitchenware or yeah. those, those kind of sort of visionary setups. Can we? Can we? I, I mentioned what partly because I figure we should have it deserves a mention, but we're not playing anything. I don't think. Uh, Is Wolf the dance that. label? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where did, do you know much about it, Mark? I mean, obviously, it's not exactly pulp's genre, yeah, but it's it's not massive in my area. I mean, they did. Um, they, they they did do very well. I mean, they um, they did the Aphex Twins early stuff. I think yeah. they're still around. I mean, it was two guys, uh, Rob Mitchell and Steve Beckett. I think Rob Mitchell sadly died quite a while ago. But yeah, they, they're, they're still a thing. Um, but yeah. The and is that linked to the wax. Gatecrasher nightclub? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I know. <laughs> I'm just going to shock you here. I know what their pulp connection is. <laughs> Go on. Um, they um, had an offshoot label in the very early 90s called Gift Records, which um, was basically set up because Pulp was still signed to fire the um, dodgy label that put this effect in the 80s. They very much wanted to get away from fire and signed to Ireland. They couldn't because they were still under contract. They wanted to put stuff out on another label that looked like it was too small to bother suing. So they got their friends from Warp Records to set up Gift Records, which was kind of a smokescreen. But Gift Records put out that really great run of singles, um, OU, and then Babies, then Razzmatazz. Oh, right. Kind of. Yeah. That was Pulp's breakthrough, the stuff that's on the, the intro album, which, I mean, for my money, that's, that's Pulp's best stuff. Um, so yeah, that, that they kind of uh, helped pulp along their way, uh, but yeah, that's probably Good for, the, for the world at large. <laughs> that's the least important thing about Warp Records, you know. Um, <laughs> but it does lead nicely into our next song, which is another song by Pulp. Right, we're going back to Pulp, but we're leaping forward in time. Um, we are in two thousand and one now. Um, I chose this because it's. Uh, it's a track off the last Pulp album, uh, We Love Life, uh, which was kind of, you know, it's... I love it. They, they were a... Yeah, it's a great... It's one of my one of my favourite Pulp albums. Um, yeah, they, they were in the somewhat leaning back on the uh, on the fan base period by this point because they were not the Strokes. Um, and, yeah, I, I've chosen it because it's, it's, um, it's the point at which after they've done different class and this is hardcore and sort of written about the uh 
the glamour of fame and the come down afterwards and move quite a long way away from the Sheffield roots. This is this is this is Jarvis writing about Sheffield again. Um, I, I, and also, I think it's kind of it's Pulp remembering what they did best, which was these long meandering songs that create an atmosphere and and take you somewhere. And that, yeah, that's why I picked it out. Let's do it. We might not be able to listen to all of it, but this is Wicker Man. It's very long. Just behind the station Before you reach the traffic island A river runs through a concrete channel I took you there once I think it was after the Lebanon the water was dirty and it smelled of industrialization. Little nesters got in the motor and globules the color of tomato ketchup. But it flows. Yeah, it flows. Through dirty brickwork conduits Connecting white witches on the moor With three Raphaelites down in Broom Hall Beneath the old tree ball factory That burnt down in the early 70s Leaving an antiquated sweet shop smell And caverns of new garland just tells this story of this trip under the sort of the culverted river of Sheffield. I mean, in your in your academic guise, Tom, are you aware of the Wicker? Certainly. The, well, the, the and the the rivers Don and Porter that are largely underneath the city. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do you know the, the road, the Wicker? Mm, yeah. Because it's also, I imagine it's changed a lot even since he wrote this song. Um, What's it like now? It used, I mean, I, when I came in 97 to have a look, because it's where Jarvis was um, it was a it was a shithole. Yeah, it, was, it was falling down. I think it still is, to be fair. Well, does he live on the Wicker or just off there? Yeah, well, this that was the, um, the tale of the song. It's called Wickerman because Jarvis in the 80s times of Pulp lived in uh, this um, disused factory, uh, which was this sort of drop-in centre for all the oddballs of Sheffield, everyone who was on the dole and knew the, uh, the guy who was the caretaker. Um, they, they lived in this bizarre abandoned steelworks. Not the... Uh... Go on, sorry. No, it's, it's gone now. He got knocked down. 30 years ago or something. So just looking at the lyrics, he says, beneath the old tree bore factory, the antiquated sweet shop smell, caverns and nougat and caramel. It's obviously got great lyrics and we, oh, we should be listening to it anyway. It's like Dylan or something, isn't it? The way it goes through this. Um, 
But yeah, I, the Wicker, I mean, it's like, uh, it used to be like the center of Sheffield, right? And now it's, and even the pubs, there was a whole, there's about four or five pubs on it, they've all closed. Partly because it's now populated by a, a mix of different kind of immigrant groups. There's like, there's some great food you can get here. There, you know, there's like kind of Iranian, Ethiopian, Caribbean restaurants, whatever, a few of them. And then a load of shut up shops with nothing and old pubs with nothing. Um, but anyway, he mentions it at the beginning of Sex City as well, the Wicker. He's obviously got a... Yeah. And it, lo- it looks out onto the onto the river, of course. Yes. Which is kind of what the song is about, going on this this diggy trip up the river as far as you can go. But uh, yeah, for, which, which bit are we at now? Fade it back up. We'll put it back up, but don't worry too much about speaking <laughs> over it because yeah. um, people can go and listen to Wicker Man by Pulp. And um, <laughs> this is their introduction to it. You know, ultimately... Yeah. I just we're... want to know where we are in it because it, it's uh, the, the end just, just kills me. At the other end of town, the river flows underneath an old railway viaduct. I went there with you once, except you were somebody else. And we gazed down at the sludgy brown surface of the water together. Then a passerby told us that it used to be a local custom to jump off the viaduct into the river when coming home from the pub on a Saturday night. But that this custom had died out when someone jumped and landed too near to the riverbank and had sunk in the mud there and drowned before anyone could reach him. Maybe he just made the whole story up. He'd never get me to jump off that bridge. No chance. Never in a million years. got this episodic thing again i think there's a link here actually back to the that rattlesnake song that it has its its movements doesn't it it starts in one place it goes through something and through something else it it, it tell it doesn't just tell a story lyrically it's the music follows it hmm. this is the bit now I'd like to go there with you down, my pretty And follow it on for miles and miles The lower the people's ordinary lives Occasionally catching a glimpse of the moon Through manhole covers along the route Yeah, it's dark sometimes But if you hold my hand I think I know the way Just another mile We will surface Surrounded by grass and trees And the fly over the takes The cars to cities But to explode At the slightest The Catcliffe Parkway Mark, you mentioned earlier That there was a period In which Jarvis was trying to be Leonard Cohen To me, this really speaks to some Leonard Cohen that's interesting. So he, he probably wasn't trying to be Leonard Cohen by this point, but he was doing a damn better job than he was when he was trying. Tonight I am sinking by making my way back. 
think that's fantastic i still find it quite quite moving now i mean it must be getting on for 20 years jesus since i first heard it um i suppose it's just this is jarvis in 2000 2001 whenever he wrote it thinking about a life that he lived which you know was probably couldn't be furthered away from the you know the life he was living at that point you know this this sort of this 20 something dull scum sado in a band in Sheffield but thinking about the world that he was inhabiting then and the sort of the, the strangeness and the richness that you'd find in you know an ostensibly dull northern town uh, and yeah, it, it it just gets me, you know. So, you know, the, the the it just rings true for me somehow. And yeah, I just I think the, the the music just fits to it perfectly. You know, the the way it kind of builds up from this kind of sort of general atmosphere at the start, and it just these these these. I'm losing my thread a little. No, it's, uh, you, you're putting it basically, <laughs> uh, and the, the thing I've always loved about Pulp is, is and, and and Jarvis, is his ambition, is is worldly. It's looking beyond where he comes from. He's clearly massively ambitious and got pop sensibilities, but he's also completely rooted in where he's from. Um, well, he, and, he only started writing about Sheffield, but he didn't live there anymore. Yeah. But you've burned all your time now, Mark, because that song was eight minutes eighteen. So we're going to have to move on. I stand by my we choice. Did. It was a great <laughs> choice. And I, I, I have, the last time I heard that song was before I moved to Sheffield. I got that album and I loved it, and I listened to it loads for like a year or two. And then, as you do, you sometimes just don't listen again. So it was really nice to hear. Um, yeah. So anyway, from one person singing about Sheffield to another one who is always singing about Sheffield. And I don't really know much about Richard Hawley other than that he was in, um, what do you call it? The long pigs, right? Um, I mean, there's obviously an alternative version of this podcast we could have done where we just played massive hits. <laughs> we could have played Don't You Want Me and Temptation and Common People and um, She Said. But we you look good on the dance floor. Yeah, we really could have done, but we didn't. Uh, oh, by the way, I saw a little clip of Jarvis just by accident as I was doing something in preparation for this where he just he's on stage and Common People is about to play. It's like a live version. He just suddenly goes, if Pope were remembered for nothing but this song, That'd be fine with me, because it's fucking great. <laughs> Which um, I thought was gracious. But um, this is Richard Hawley, who who is, he really feels like a patron saint or like the Pied Piper of Sheffield or something, because he's like, he's sung so much about the city. He um, is clearly idolised by a lot of people here. And he, he's represented a side of Sheffield, I think, that none of these other acts do. 
I haven't chosen a song though where he's singing about Sheffield specifically. I just thought this was quite a, a change of a, a totally different mood and a beautiful little song. Should we listen to it and then we can talk about Richard Hawley? Where you gonna go Now they've closed the old home down And everybody's let you down And you're the beauty of the town Baby Don't get hung up in your soul Let him make your heart grow old Don't get hung up in your soul Baby Don't get hung up in your soul You're the one who sees Darkness on the edge of town You're the one my arms around You're the thorn, you're the crown Baby, don't get hung up in your soul Let him make your heart grow old Don't get hung up in your soul Baby Don't get hung up in your soul Don't let him make your heart grow cold Don't get hung up in your soul, baby. Don't get hung up in your soul. And don't it make your heart grow cold.
So that's Richard Hawley. What do we have to say about Richard Hawley? It's not Cabaret Voltaire, is it? <laughs> it's definitely not Cabaret Voltaire. It's quite country. It's not Human League. Speaking back to our last episode, which hasn't gone public yet, Mark, so you won't have heard it, but we just we just did yeah. an episode on country music and... Um... Yeah, there's there's leanings that way, aren't there? Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, it's quite sort of Johnny Cash. I mean, obviously, a lot of his stuff is this kind of cinematic. Um, I don't know, swelling strings and uh, uh, and a lot of songs where he he kind of is, there's a lot of imagery of Sheffield and about particular places in Sheffield. But uh, I don't know. I just thought something more pared down. Um, I just thought that was very lovely. Yeah, yeah, a bit of Buddy Holly in there as well. Uh, yeah. The, uh, yeah. The baby, that, yeah. that, that bit, you know. Was... His look, his look seems to borrow from the Buddy Holly kind of. Uh... Mm. You see, it's kind of it's so it's all it's pre pre modern rock, isn't it? All of what he does, yeah. it's kind of stuff that our our grandparents would probably have liked. Uh, stuff that I would have imagined his generation. You know, I think he, you know, he's exact age. I think he's about the same age as Jarvis. So he grew up through post-punk and the eighties and all that. Would have absolutely rejected yeah. and sneered at. But there's, there's a sense of sort of coming home. When was that uh, song from? That's quite recent. I mean, it's like 2009 or something. I think so. He only really became lauded critically and uh, I think really sort of famous in a way in the in the 2000s, right? Um, as a solo artist, anyway, he won all these Mercury Awards, and uh, he. But just... I'm now looking at his Wikipedia page, and he has collaborated with Shakespeare's sister, which takes us back to our very first episode about Alan Mulder. Oh, I've not dug back that far yet. <laughs> go to go there. I'll get Forgot there. about. You're working backwards, I presume, Mark. I I am. Yes, yes. Would you recommend that route, or should I start from the beginning? No, the the, the first episode around Mal- Alan Mulder, I almost regret having done that tasty morsel so early while we were still learning how to podcast because I, I, yeah. I could probably do a better job of it now. Some people do listen to it first and are kind of weird, slightly confused that that would be the first topic that we do, like things produced by a man called Alan Mulder. <laughs> but um, it's just one of those quirks of history, isn't it? But uh, Mark, I just wanted to ask you, talking about like um, your stuff your grandparents would have liked and all that, what's the Scott Walker connection? So like, there's something Scott Walkery about Richard Hawley, right? There's something Scott Walkery about about Jarvis Jarvis's solo album, anyway. Certainly that one he did, and then the Arctic, um, you know, that Last Shadow Puppets album, which um, yeah, that's they, quite they got into their epic strings and things for a while, didn't they? Yeah. So um, what is that? Just a coincidence? Scott Walker in Sheffield. I've no idea. Um, I mean, it goes back to even to that track, Rattlesnakes. Again, I mean the. Um, the beginning of it reminds me of um, the first song on Scott Four, The Seventh Seal, those sort of shivering strings. Mm. Um, but yeah, what what the link is there, you know, apart from maybe just people talking to each other. I mean, Scott Walker became a cool thing for post-punk guys in the 80s to get into okay, because uh, of that Julian Cope connection. Uh, you know his his artist solo albums were forgotten and deleted, but Julian Cope thought they were amazing. We're sort of talking about teardrop explodes period Julian Cope, and he got um, Zoo Records 
as in Bill Drummond, to put out a compilation of tracks called Firescape in the, in the Sky. And it was packaged to sort of look like a post-punk album. It's kind of all gray and nice gray minimal sleeve. Uh, he talks about it in his autobiography, you know, about how he sort of tried to package it so that the uh, the alternative kids of 1981 would think it was a post-punk album. Oh, um, I see. But he'd get, get to hear these amazing songs. So, you know, it, it, I don't think it was unique for no. people in the, in the 80s to sort of dig Scott Walker. But yeah, I mean, you, you, you're dead right. Yeah, Hawley and Jarvis and... Um, and the last shadow puppets all have that that thread running through them. Yeah, and then we've got Scott Walker produced by Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois. Did we? That almost takes us back to some earlier. Oh, it's all connected, isn't it? <laughs> Speaking of things all being connected, um, let's move to our next song because that, in a way, brings us full circle, doesn't it? Song called Lemons and Limes. Um, this is Heim. Are you guys familiar with Heim? No, not that Heim. There's another Heim, right? Yeah, there's 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 Heim with an A. Yeah, this is Heim with a E, and I think they were, they were called Oberheim when they started, as in the synthesizer company. But it looked like they were going to get sued, so they changed it. Uh, this is um, they are they've been I think they're still around, but they were they've been around since the early noughties. It's um, Boz, who was in the All Seeing Eye and has been a, a general face around Sheffield for donkeys, and uh, Nick, who was in. Russell Senior's post pulp band Vanini, since you ask. Yes, uh, so Vanini, <laughs> I, I got um, early demos of Vanini from you, Mark. Oh, I, yes, well, I could do six episodes on how much I like Vanini, but let's not go there. <laughs> what attracted me to Vanini was, we were talking before about sort of 1999 being such a tedious time for indie music, and they were sort of pushing against that by being sort of a bit arty and a bit glamorous but trying to have some interesting content if you like and this club night was the same sort of vibe he was trying to create this scene that would pull in all the sort of disenfranchised weirdos of Sheffield um, and yeah the I just really like this because it, it's kind of it's got that Sheffield feel to it. It's quite synthy. It's quite sort of robotic, but it's got something personal and emotional over the top. Stick it on. Stop me talking.
Firstly, I had to get a venue. I checked out loads in Sheffield, some good ones and some not so good. I'd even call them crap. But I decided on this underground club. It weren't underground because you didn't know where it were. It were underground because you had to go down some steps into it. It felt right. Next up, I had to get somebody to give me an hand. They needed to be good. So I got this mod called Joey. I picked him because he hated mods even though he looked like one. I wanted it to be a cool club. Like I'd been to in Paris and London years ago. But stuff London, they're just a bunch of bully boys who drink shandy. Can I say that? I just have. seen a dream come true, but word has soon spread, as people I'd never seen before were queuing a door to come in. I was watching in slow motion as old misfits and mavericks came in, they were all aghast but old lemons and limes that were swinging in time of music. They couldn't get their heads round it really, slowly dance floor were busted, everybody dancing the lemons and limes. As juice drips off onto their sweaty bodies from all through on each other's shoulders. They didn't even know whose shoulders they were on. But they didn't care. Everything were cool. I'd been running night for about a year. That's when it all started to get a bit daft. You see, I'd got this whole new circle of friends who weren't really my friends. They were more like enemy within. And they made me look at myself and I crumbled. At first me and then club. I ended up buying a one-way ticket to Mexico. But I didn't go. So who's the geezer doing the vocals? That's, uh, that's Nick. The guy who was in Vanini. Because they did a song with Phil Oakey as well, right? Uh, they did, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, I don't think Nick does that many vocals. There's, uh, a lot of it's just instrumentals. Some of it, uh, Boz sings, who's, he's, who's got this very sort of uh, sweet, almost falsetto kind of voice. But yeah, and no, I, I just, yeah, I picked that yeah. one out because it's so yeah, Sheffield. I like it. it. Just, yeah, yeah. I like it. It's got like a great hook as well. Yeah, mm. very nice. But yeah, that's um, I, I, I'd never heard the song, but I just I looked them up. I saw this; they'd done this stuff with Phil Phil Oakey, and I thought, well, that you know, we began with Human League, so that's why I put it at the end there. But I think it was quite a nice one to end on because that is the last of our Sheffield songs, actually. Yeah, this has reminded me of all the stuff I want to do in terms of just reading into and listening into all these bands that I've only really just dipped into briefly over the seven years I've lived here. Um, and maybe checking out some of the venues to see where they're still there when we're allowed to go out again. Uh, been to the Lead Mill, been to the Washington, obviously, which is a classic oh. Sheffield pub where Chef Russell Senior is often still hanging out, probably. Not been there since my book launch. That was a great <laughs> Is that where you did your book launch? That's yeah. brilliant. Amazing. <laughs> I was in the Washington, surrounded by ex-members of Pulp. The phrase pig in shit springs to mind. But can you remind, am I right in thinking that you interviewed most of them, but Jarvis didn't participate when you were writing the book? 
yeah, that's right. Um, and I can I can get why. Um, I mean, I don't think it's that uncommon for people like that, you know, sort of major artists, not really to want to get involved with someone writing a book about them. Um, I would imagine if Jarvis wanted a book written about him, he would want it to happen on his on his terms. And fair enough. Um, but the interesting thing, you know, he'd, he'd done so many interviews. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> the book didn't suffer that much, really. You know, it's it's full of quotes from Jarvis. Um, yeah. You know, he, he's spoken to uh, everyone and any, anyone um, over the years. I did I I did get his thoughts briefly. <laughs> When I finally met him, he was doing a book signing, and I explained who I was, and uh, he just sort of said, "Oh, yeah, I've, I've I've read quite a bit of that one actually. It's 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 pretty accurate." And uh, yeah, oh, that's signed, good. Yeah, he signed in the book. Here's the truth and beauty. So he wasn't bullish, He wasn't bluffing. Um, so that was quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Um. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to talk more about pop and all these bands someday and discover more of them. But um, everything has to come to an end, doesn't it? And generally, we end with one of our own songs, as you know, Mark. We should probably be ending with one of your songs, actually. I don't know why we didn't think that. Hang on. So before we before we do this, uh, Mark, are you going to come on again and do another episode with us? Oh, uh, I'd be delighted to. Okay, so th- we'd love you to. I will have less um, wine next time. No, no. Have more. Have more. <laughs> and have more. I want an Arthur's Departure song as our final. Uh, or Unexploded Shells. Unexploded Shells I could tolerate. Yes, Arthur's Departure I would struggle with. One of each. Okay, fine. Arthur's Departure weirdly have a bigger place in my heart. I, I, you know, I'm immensely proud of the negligible amount we, we um, achieved. But yeah, Unexploded Shells are probably more palatable to a general audience. Fine, we'll, we'll we'll take it offline. Tom, see us out with the last song. Okay, so this is a song by Seeing Scarlet, um, and I chose it. It has nothing to do with Sheffield, but I think perhaps in two ways it does resonate with many things we've heard. One is, um, as I've said, I think that some of those bands, particularly the Comsat Angels, uh, remind me of us sonically, uh, and the harmonics on that number will uh, resonate with what you hear at the beginning of this song. But also, I think, just the moodiness and the atmosphere. You know, this is a song where we, I think, try to... Th- there's a sense of a, of a kind of dark uh, going beneath the surface of the dark brooding river, that, that, that side of the Sheffield music, which you get in some of the stuff we've heard. I think you get a bit of that here. So this is a song called Dead, off our first album, Mental Notes. Closing track, I believe. Yeah.
Was it not a version of that where the dead, dead, dead part was uh, sort of pitch shifted? Dead. 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 We did, we, <laughs> we did a version of it in uh, what we call the Summer House recordings, where we went to Charlie Layton's um, parents' gaff somewhere down in the south of England and recorded everything on an 8-track. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. I'd forgotten it. I've never heard that version in years and years. I don't know if I've got that. So if I look at the map of, of, of where the listeners of this podcast come from and I zoom in, I'm beginning to see listeners in Barnsley, Rotherham, Mansfield, no. Macclesfield, Leeds, Scunthorpe, Newark on Trent, um Cutcliffe. 
Bring Cliff. <laughs> At a cliff. At a cliff. And all the names mentioned in our very first opening track. Manor Park. But we need more of you. More of you, people of the Peak District, people of Sheffield, people of the surrounding Pennines. Um, Wow. We're going to get loads of complaints now. They're all going to be listening to it. Now, I'm glad we have Mark here because it would have been a shocking tale of stream of inaccuracies and ignorance had we not had you here. (laughs) Apart from the fact that, you know, all around you've been great. Like, that's good to have had. (laughs) Yeah. It's the equivalent of um, us having a cowboy alongside uh, us in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> Are you not going to talk about dead a bit more then? No. Dead. Um, you proud of that one? I think it's great. I am quite proud of it, actually. I think it's good. It's actually that, that, that reviewer who hated us, who we spent about half an hour slagging off in a recent episode because he reviewed Mental Notes and didn't like it. He did like that song. <laughs> but um, we also just said he's a total twat, so that's probably not... He's not a good judge of... But what, what I would rock about that is it's interesting set of influences because um, we, what we've done is we've put a song that, you know, perhaps could have sounded like the bands we've listened to today a bit and then put these pianos over it which are very un-Sheffield and that's almost entirely I think due to the influence of the Crimea that we were listening to at the time a band called the Crimea who had those kind of tinkly piano parts and I remember because I think it must be me playing the piano um that it was trying to trying to do a Crimea um I I remember it being this is one of your demos that we turned into a song um so it is kind of a child of your creation, goodies, and I love the lyric. The just the simple line: "The last time I saw you, you were dead," is just very rich with imagery. Yeah, the whole thing's very it's, rich. It... It's got this florid, dark, sexy atmosphere. I really like it. Oh but yeah, quite... why did you call it withnail? Uh, Hor- horny withnail. Yeah. yeah. Horny withnail. Horny withnail. Yeah. Just... yeah. Because it's got like that that. Uh, that slightly um, theatrical edge to it, uh, but also it's it's like someone's thoughts walking away from just having been been up to no good. Withner was very well, asexual, quite, wasn't he? Uh, and that's quite Jarvis, isn't it? A horny, horny Withner, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, know, yeah. I mean, I, I never thought of it quite as... so genetic, was he? Not in quite the same way. But yeah, no. But yeah, it has things in common with Jarvis while sounding nothing like Jarvis. I'd never thought of it as horny, really. It was more like it was just like weird, freaky dreams. Oh, um, okay. It's all about dream, but then I can't remember really all the lyrics. The other thing is just that it was glorious being in that studio, and Jack had a proper slide guitar, I think. And um, he was like, why don't you put this on? And we did it, and it was really fun. Mm. And pretty much the only time I've played a slide guitar in my life. Mm. It's really nice. Yeah, it's a bit like a Rorschach test. Um, that song, you kind of read into it what you see. Um, so, yeah, Horny uh, um, Withnail is, is, is talking about your psyche at the moment, I think, Mark. <laughs> oh, he's turned off his camera On in the sky. Or maybe he's just... <laughs> he's got a bit heated. <laughs> <laughs> He's just um, sorting himself out. Oh, Mark, are you still there? <laughs> what a way to end! The last time we saw Mark Sturdy, he was alive. Um, thank you very much okay. for joining us on this episode. I'm sure Mark 
would have loved to have said goodbye, but he's disappeared at a seminal moment. Um, Indeed. Thank you very much. Well done if you made it. We'll catch you all soon. Ciao.